Before we start today, a quick warning. There's some content concerning veterinary procedures for cats that listeners may consider graphic. Just want to let you know so you can decide if this episode's for you. Hi there, and thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition. We're a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. Today's little journey into tiny science starts with a mystery. All the great detectives of literature make their names by finding patterns. They look at dots and see how they connect, neat and tidy. When most of us would see random chaos, they see careful order. So let's look at one of the mysteries of the genetics world, something we've talked about a fair bit. Spots and stripes. Where you and I might see patterns that are skin deep. Our Sherlock Holmes of animal morphology, Dr. Greg Barsh, sees a deeper mystery. The contrast between random and non-random patterns in animals. So tell me what's interesting, even from a morphological standpoint, about the spots and stripes. Uh, you know, for example, the I believe the word you use is periodicity. Sure, sure. So uh, if you think about uh, just stripes for a moment, they can come in two general flavors. Uh, they can come in a flavor where the position of the stripe is random. Uh, and let me try and think of a, a, a nice example. Actually, there's a wonderful example in cats, right? So anyone who has uh, uh, seen or owned a calico cat or a tortoiseshell cat, if you look closely at those cats, you'll see that the position of the stripes is random. You can't predict where the next one will occur. Uh, and that is fundamentally different from, say, tabby stripes in cats or light and dark stripes on zebras, where the position of the light and dark stripes is very regular and you can always predict where the next one is going to appear or predict with uh, a high degree of confidence. And so we refer to that as uh, a periodic pattern as opposed to a random pattern. And it turns out we know a lot already about what gives rise to these sort of random stripy patterns in, uh, say, tortoiseshell or calico cats, but we know nothing about how you get these periodic patterns in, say, tabby cats or tigers. Okay, so tell me about that. How is it possible that you know how to generate randomness in the genome, but not how to generate the uh, the repetitive patterns? Well, it's not really randomness in the genome. It's randomness during development, right? Uh, because uh, the, um, the way that the stripes actually show up or the spots actually show up is there are little cells that are making pigment and there's a group of cells that says, well, I'm just going to make light pigment or I'm just going to make dark pigment. And so we know enough about developmental mechanisms to say that when the stripes appear at random positions, that must reflect a random developmental event. And in the case of tortoiseshell and calico cats, that random developmental event turns out to be this fundamental biological phenomenon that is related to the X chromosome, the, the, the chromosome uh, that the sex chromosome of which females have two copies and males have one copy. And it happens only in female cats. And that tells us already that because you only or almost always see the tortoiseshell or calico pattern, 
in female cats with two X chromosomes that it's due to this random X inactivation. X inactivation helps generate randomness in animal morphology, or the way animals look. All female mammals have two X chromosomes. All males have one X chromosome. And what's important uh, during development is for the amount of the genes that are produced by the X chromosome in males to be the same as the amount that's produced by both X chromosomes in females. So how do you accomplish that? And the way that evolution has figured this out in mammals is that in all females in which every cell has two X chromosomes, one of the X chromosomes is turned off. It's inactivated. So in every cell in the body of females, uh, there only one of the X chromosomes is producing genes at any particular time. And when the cell divides, it remembers which X chromosome has been inactivated, and it keeps it inactivated in females. And so in a tortoiseshell cat, in a female tortoiseshell cat, uh, what, you, what you're seeing is in the, in the light stripes, the, uh, the cells that are producing the pigment uh, are always inactivating the exact same X chromosome, and that's because all of those cells originate from uh, a, the same cell early in development that happened to inactivate one of the X chromosomes, whereas in the dark stripe, the cell that gave rose, the rise to those stripes inactivated the other X chromosome. Okay, so we get random. Uh, then when you look at the periodic patterns, no clue. No clue. Tell me how that is. When you're looking at those, what are you looking for and what is missing in terms of answers? The presence of these periodic patterns is something we don't know how they come about in development. So this is one of these unsolved biological mysteries whereby pursuing the genetics and developmental biology will hope we'll learn something useful and interesting. Stripes happen early in the development process, long before you have mewling kittens, you have a developing embryo. And that developing embryo is already showing neatly patterned stripes. That means understanding stripes helps us understand how we get from just a little embryo to a little furry friend. So? I, I think the first question to ask is, why would you want to study embryonic development, right? And, and, and there, the answer is, we know the stripes begin sometime uh, during, during embryonic or fetal development. And the reason we know that is because uh, whenever you see a newborn kitten or uh, a newborn, if you're lucky enough to see uh, a newborn uh, tiger, say, uh, or even a newborn zebra, uh, those animals you can see you can see the stripes from the uh, from the very beginning, and so the stripes, of course, or any color pattern, they come from these pigment cells called melanocytes, and we've talked about that in the past. And so as soon as the melanocytes are present uh, in the developing skin, the stripes are there. Uh, and in fact, uh, rarely when there's been uh, example, been opportunities to say, look at uh, you know, fetal zebras, so that there are a couple examples where people can't even remember how it came about, but you know, uh, you know, a, a pregnant zebra you know, died, unfortunately, and, you know, somebody was able to examine the fetus, and they could see uh, stripes in the, in the fetal zebra, right? And, and so we know that as soon as the pigment cells are present during development, uh, the stripes are there. So, so we know that the stripes must occur or that the, 
the part, the developing skin must know that it should have a particular uh, stripe identity. So the developing skin must say to itself, okay, here is the part of the skin that is going to be a dark area, and here is the part of the skin that's going to be a light area. And we know that it's not the melanocytes, but the, the, because uh, as we've talked about before, the melanocytes in the skin, they're everywhere, right? Uh, and so when the melanocytes enter the developing skin, the developing skin must be saying to the melanocytes, okay, you're going to become an area that's going to be dark, and you're next door, you're going to become an area that's going to be light. And we know the exact same thing happens in cats. But the big difference and the big opportunity that we have with cats is that we actually have a way, we figured out a way to have access to, uh, to embryonic cat skin. So real quickly, the way the researchers get to examine embryonic cat skin is simple. They partner with organizations that spay and neuter feral cats to control population. The researchers use material that would otherwise be discarded to get a better understanding of feline development. They do it because it can provide key clues in some important mysteries of biology. Okay, so tell me a little bit about that, about identifying an unsolved mystery in biology. What does that do for science on the whole? Well, it, it's like, you know, other mysteries uh, that uh, uh, we've talked about in the past. Uh, you, you never know what you're going to find until you get there. Uh, but the, uh, what, what history has taught us is that uh, figuring these things out often reveals uh, new rules, new aspects, new mechanisms in biology that are used over and over and over again, uh, not only to give rise to stripes, but also to... Uh, uh, generate diversity in other tissues uh, and often underlying uh, disease mechanisms as well. Okay, so get, give us an example of one time that's happened. You know, actually, I'm going to give you an example that is in one of the simplest developmental organisms, uh, and that's brewer's yeast, right? So brewer's yeast, we don't think of so much as a developmental organism because it's basically unicellular. But, you know, it turns out that, you know, yeast, uh, like uh, uh, multicellular animals, uh, they come in two sexes or two mating types. And that uh, so there are, uh, we don't call them female and male, we call them uh, mating type A and mating type alpha. And those cells, the, 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 the mat alpha and the mat uh, A cell, they can signal to each other to say, oh, yes, you know, I'm one type and you're the other type. Let's get together, right? Uh, and, and the study of that process, how that signal gets passed from a mat A to a mat alpha cell or vice versa, has unco uncovered a signaling pathway that is representative of uh, a really important class of uh, signaling molecules and receptors that are utilized really by all multicellular organisms. Got it. And so used how by other multicellular organisms? In, in many different ways. The, 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 a related signaling pathway is used in uh, human cells to control things like uh, blood pressure and heart rate and uh, many aspects of uh, endocrinology uh, and, uh, and brain function. Got it. And so how does understanding the pathway help us in, say, medicine? When you say, oh, well, in yeast, you know, th there are these different components of uh, a pathway. Uh, there is the signaling molecule, there's the receptor, 
They're the molecules inside the cell that the receptor then activates, and then that those molecules are then uh, somehow translated into a downstream response inside the cell. So in yeast, you can figure out easily, or people have figured out easily, uh, all of what, or they figured out using the tools of molecular genetics, uh, what all those molecules are. And so then when you move to a situation, say, in a much more complicated animal like humans, and you say, ah, you know, here is uh, a disease, and it's a disease that's caused by a mutation in a receptor that's in the exact same family as the receptor that is responsible for, uh, you know, mating type uh, signaling uh, in, in yeast. Uh, well, you know, a logical next step is to say, well, I wonder if a similar type of disease might be caused by a mutation in something that is like the downstream molecules in yeast that are involved in the same pathway. And so you know where to look. Uh, and so that's uh, a great example of, where, of how people have identified those pathways uh, based those pathways in human disease based on what was known from simpler organisms. So what can we take away from developing stripes? What we've been able to learn by studying these uh, embryonic cats and fetal cats is that at the very earliest stages of skin development, prior to the time that there are any hair follicles uh, or even the hint of any, <laughs> any, any hair follicles, that there are cells in the outer layer of the skin that's called the epidermis. And those cells, they organize themselves into um, what we might call uh, precursors of stripes, right? So they're not really stripes because they don't look different. There's no color difference. And the reason there isn't any color difference is because there are no melanocytes. There's no pigment cells. But in fact, it turns out that what... Uh, what we figured out, and by we in this case, I'm talking about two senior scientists in uh, our group, uh, Kelly McGowan and Chris Kalin. What they have figured out by studying these uh, embryonic cats is that the, the uh, area of the skin or the area of the developing skin that is going to give rise to the dark stripe is a tiny little bit thicker than the area of the skin that is going to give rise to the light stripe. And by thicker, I mean that these cells, they're dividing a little bit more, they're piling up. And so something is happening at that stage uh, to say, okay, here is uh, a part of the skin that says, okay, I want to become a dark stripe. And so I've decided that I'm going to be, be a dark stripe. And so I'm going to divide more, I'm going to pile up, and, and I'm going to tell all of the cells next door to me, don't divide and pile up. We want you to be a, uh, a light stripe, so you need to remain thin, right? So this thick, thin difference in the developing skin, it is the time, it, time in development when stripe identity is being established. And so we've moved where we think is really an important step forward, and now we're identifying the molecules that are expressed only in the thick area and only in the thin area to understand the signaling mechanisms that uh, how these cells are talking to each other and why are they how are they um, acquiring this uh, what will eventually be a beautiful periodic pattern. Is there any idea currently, theoretical or otherwise, as to how universal that is? Uh, we're talking about domestic cats or feral cats, but is that believed to be the case for? tigers and 
lions and bears. Sorry, tigers and lions and cheetahs. Yeah, I don't know about uh, striped bears, David. Uh, that, that's an interesting <laughs> question. But um, but yeah, you raise so so it it clearly is the case for uh, all of the uh, all of the felid species, and one of the reasons we know that is because there are mutations. I can't remember whether we talked about it in, in the past, but there's a very well-known mutation of the tabby gene in cats that turns stripes into blotches. And we know that the mutation, a mutation in the exact same gene occurs in cheetahs and turns uh, uh, spotted cheetahs uh, actually into striped cheetahs, right? Uh, so, uh, so that tells us that those mechanisms uh, are the same. But it, this gets to the, the broader question. This is not only an unsolved developmental biology mystery, it's an unsolved evolutionary biology mystery. Because uh, what, about, what about zebras, right? So uh, domestic cats are pretty closely related to tigers and lions, but they're pretty distantly related to zebras. Uh, and so an unsolved evolutionary mystery uh, is do the mechanisms that give rise to felid stripes, are they the same mechanisms that give rise to stripes in all other mammals like zebras? Got it. And what do we know about that so far? Do we Are we close to an answer? We're working on it. Uh, we're... Um, uh, that it's a harder question to, to answer, and one of the reasons it's harder to answer is because uh, zebras aren't like domestic cats. There, there aren't uh, zebras aren't domesticated. You know, we don't have access to. You know, there's no opportunities to look at uh, embryonic and fetal zebras the same way there is to look at uh, embryonic and fetal cats. And there's also not as much diversity, right? Uh, zebras aren't a companion animal. We don't have the same uh, amazing uh, diversity in patterns that we see. Uh, have arisen in, in domestic cats. Is there any early indication of what kind of mechanisms stripes might relate to in, say, humans? That's a tough one. And what we can say, uh, and we've learned this really from studying these embryonic, uh, embryonic cat skin, is that the, the mechanism involves uh, cells that form groups uh, and those groups of cells uh, then talk to each other and identify themselves as distinct from uh, another group of cells that are, that are right next to each other. So you think about that. You, th you think about, well, how are groups of cells that take on different fates or different identities, how is that relevant to human biology? And it's relevant to just about every different aspect of developmental biology that you can think about. Right. So many different aspects. And frequently enough that it matters, something goes wrong in the developmental process. Right. And then you have to figure out what went wrong and how you might correct for it or address it or identify it. Sure. So so there are some kind of simple uh, sorts of things uh, you could say, well, you know, there are developmental abnormalities that can uh, give rise to birth defects in in humans, and we'd like to know more about those to see if someday we can fix them. Uh, but developmental biology is also important in the context of human disease uh, in adult life, right? Because uh, there are many examples where things go wrong, very common diseases uh, in, in adult life, where an understanding of developmental biology can give you insight into pot uh, potential treatments. Uh, and I'll just give you one 
a really a great example here, and that's bone marrow transplantation, right? So bone marrow transplantation is often a cure for uh, many different types of blood cancer. But how do you get the, uh, the cells that give rise uh, to, the, uh, to all of the different blood cells from the bone marrow, right? And so, so often what you, we, we call it bone marrow transplantation because we look for an identical twin or somebody who's very closely related who has the exact same DNA sequence uh, or, or who is, it was histocompatible. histocompatible. Uh, but wouldn't it be nice uh, if we didn't have to do that? Uh, and if you, again, think about bone marrow transplantation, you know, many of us are familiar with these stories where, oh, you know, we're, we're, we're searching for a donor. Uh, but what you would really like to do is to start with the stem cells from the, uh, the individual who uh, is ill to begin with. And so an understanding of developmental biology is helping scientists to take, say, uh, cells from the skin of the individual who might be ill and turn those into stem cells that can actually then give rise and repopulate the bone marrow. Uh, and so that's something that's happening right now. Uh, people are working on uh, those. It's something that I think we'll probably see in the next several years. And there's similar kinds of ideas that people are talking about for more complicated uh, conditions like neurodegeneration, right? Wouldn't it be nice to understand the mechanisms that underlie brain development so that when something goes wrong, goes awry in adult brain, we can actually fix it by, by uh, recapitulating the developmental processes? Got it. Okay. Uh, and so now fast forward to the end game here. When you go to work in your lab and you think of this is where we're going, what does that picture look like in your head? You know, uh, for most people, they can picture the future, but it's vagaries. It's flying cars or whatever the case may be. But you've got a pretty specific vision for the research you're conducting. And where does it all lead when you imagine it? Well, so in the context of, uh, of cat stripes, uh, I, I have sort of two answers to the question. The first is we are going to figure out uh, in the next few years the um, – molecules, the pathways uh, uh, that give rise to these uh, periodic, the thick, thin in, the thick and thin areas of the developing uh, cat skin that ultimately give rise to, uh, to stripes and spots. And we're going to understand that, and we're going to then ask, well, uh, how are those mechanisms shared uh, across other animals, across other tissues, across other systems. So that's one answer. The other answer gets to the evolutionary question uh, because uh, as we discussed, the, the cells and the molecules and the mechanisms are the same uh, across these closely related animals like lions and tigers and cheetahs and cats. Uh, but why do those animals look different? Why do tigers have stripes? Why do cheetahs have spots? Uh, why do leopards and jaguars have rosettes? And so understanding the mechanism will allow us to answer that question and figure out how those differences arose during evolution. In fact, we should be able to say, uh, have those differences been selected for? So this gets back to a question you asked me at the beginning, or we talked about at the beginning, what function do stripes serve and what function uh, do spots serve? And we may not be able to answer what function do they serve in a, uh, 
uh, very compelling, rigorous way, but we will be able to answer the question of have they been selected for and how strongly have they been selected for and which genes have been selected for. Uh, and so those are the two directions that I see the research going in the next few years. Got it. And, and when it all plays out and you have these answers, how does that change the way we understand the world? We learn more about it. Uh, you know, it's, it's uh, I would say, one more, one more mystery that is solved. Again, thank you for joining us for this tiny expedition into the mystery of spots and stripes. All this season, we'll tackle fascinating stories of morphology, the genetics that give life its incredible diversity. Tiny Expeditions is a podcast about genetics, DNA, and inheritance from the Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology. We're a nonprofit research institution in Huntsville, Alabama, and we've got a campus full of scientists doing public research, alongside companies developing products and services, all with one aim to translate genomic discoveries into real-world applications that make for a healthier, more sustainable world. That's everything from cancer research to agriculture for a changing climate. If it's work you find worthwhile, just do us a small favor right now. Leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening and tell someone that you listened to this interesting little story about genetics. Help them find our podcast. Knowledge is better when you share it. Thank you for joining us. On the next Tiny Expedition, can genetics help save wildlife? From endangered species like the cheetah to extinct species like the quagga, conservationists rely on genetics to help identify challenges and even work on restoring species. We'll explore how conservationists use genetics in their mission. Also, if you want to see pictures that go with the episode you just heard, check out tinyexpeditions.org. For Tiny Expeditions, I'm David Kumbrock. Talk to you soon. Hudson Alpha.